Welcome to the fourth episode of Digest Cast, a podcast dedicated to the belief that big things come in small packages. I'm one of your hosts, the Irredeemable Shag. Along with me, as always, is my co-host, the esteemed Rob Kelly, and we are a proud member of the Fire and Water Podcast Network. Oof, Rob, it's good to be back, buddy. It's been a few weeks. How have you been? Who are you again? Um, well, I'm called the Irrescible Shag. I'm, I'm just this wonderful... I, I had to move, okay? In fact, this is the first podcast I've recorded in the whole new digs, so it's probably got a whole different echo effect and all this stuff, and I mean, all the neon and the dancers and the poles that are in here. I hope they're not going to be too distracting. So you held down the fort. Thanks for that. <laughs> yes, for, for a while, the network was sort of the... Uh... The me and Siskoid uh, network, because I think we were just trading shows back and forth for like two weeks straight. Well, I am glad to be talking about one of my favorite formats, the Digest. And uh, we folks have decided to bring along a guest. Really, it's more like a mediator between Rob and I, because there's a lot of friction there. So thankfully, we have brought in Dr. Ange of the Supergirl blog, Comic Box Commentary, and the Legion Super Bloggers. He is going to be our intermediary. How you doing, Ange? I'm doing great. Uh, I can't tell you how much I love the digest that we're covering today, and I'm just thrilled that you invited me on so I can bore you with a lot of useless knowledge about this character. Fantastic. The Doom Patrol digest, this is going to be absolutely great. I can't. Oh, crap. What? I'm sorry. I was thinking about the Waiting for Doom uh, 100th episode they just released. No, folks. We are covering DC. The, I'm sorry. The, the best of DC. Blue Ribbon Digest. Uh, the many lives of Supergirl. Woohoo! Very exciting. And of course, if we're going to cover Supergirl, we're going to have Dr. Ange on here to talk about it. But before we get too far, we have got some big news we've got to talk about, folks. Now, by the time you hear this, you might have been able to pick up your own copy of, that's right, a brand new Superhero Digest. Woohoo! Marvel Comics Digest number two, The Avengers. So excited to hear about this. It is scheduled to hit comic book stores on Wednesday, August 2nd. So for those of you uh, in the, our future, it's in your past. But uh, now, the way we looked at it last time when the Spider-Man Digest came out, it took about two more weeks after it hit the comic shops before it hit like the grocery stores and stuff. I don't know if that same timing is going to happen again. But either way, start looking at your grocery stores, your targets, your pharmacies, you know, uh, wherever creepy strip clubs Rob went to to get his Digest. But check those out because, again, Digest number two is coming out. Rob, why don't you tell the folks at home what's going to be in that Digest? It's going to contain uh, Avengers, the original series numbers 1 and 2, plus 235 through 237. Marvel Adventures, uh, the Avengers number 9 and 16. Marvel Universe Avengers, Earth's Mightiest Heroes number 6. And Marvel Universe Avengers Assemble 1 to 2. It's 224 <laughs> pages for six ninety nine. It's just the same format as the uh, first Digest, which was the Spider-Man book, which we covered in episode 3.5 of this very show. I'm excited about this one because, like, you know, obviously the first couple of Avengers stories are going to be great. I do love that they had to specify 1963 because they've had so many relaunches in the Avengers. It's completely impossible to keep up with what volume. But uh, they also included those Marvel Adventures books I love so much, those all-ages books. I love those things. So Now, Ange, do you have any personal love for Avengers in any way, shape, or form? Yeah, what was that team that all wore, like, black leather jackets for a while? No, they were brown leather jackets. Brown leather jackets. Yes, my beloved brown jacketed Avengers do not have an issue represented here, which I think is complete bogus. Um, so, uh, yeah, obviously, I was more of a DC guy than a Marvel guy. And really, the only thing that I would say for Avengers is that I liked the John Byrne West Coast Avengers, which I think half the people want to cheer me and half the people want to kill me for saying that. Wasn't that, uh, did you like West Coast Avengers or Avengers West Coast? Uh, I think it changed in the middle of the burn run, didn't it? Yeah, uh, I, think, but, I, think, I think it did. Yeah, I started picking it up with that whole uh, Vision uh, storyline and followed it through. Is uh, that the one where he fell into Vata Bleach? 
<laughs> exactly. And it turns out he wasn't the Human Torch. Uh, <laughs> so. Oh, poor Vision. He got burned with continuity. Oh, so bad. <laughs> well, that's very exciting, folks. Be looking for that. Definitely, you know, obviously we can buy in comic book stores. We all know where to find comic book stores if you're listening to this. However, I strongly encourage you to pick up your copy in a grocery store or a newsstand or something because it just – that's going to encourage them to order more. And you know what? This is – that seems like me – to me, that's the way it should be purchased, you know? And I like watching Rob struggle to find a copy, so that's fun. <laughs> yeah. I, I, maybe I should do a video diary where I just film me going to all these different stores trying to – in vain trying to find this book. Banging your head against copies of Vogue. Why? Why? Before we get too much further, though, we probably should take a second to thank our sponsor. Folks, this episode of the Digest Cast is sponsored in part by InStockTrades.com. InStockTrades is your best online source for trades, hardcovers, and other collected editions, all for up to 42% off with free shipping for orders of $50 or more. Now, uh, the way this works is we pick something from the InStockTrades library. Now, Ange, you're a guest, so we didn't necessarily expect you to bring anything. Did, did you happen to bring anything? Uh, not only did I bring one uh, um, uh, in-stock trade, uh, in trade recommendation, I picked two. That is amazing. Look at that, a guest who actually prepares. You can suck it, Bailey. That's awesome. <laughs> Ange, why don't you go ahead and go first? Well, uh, I, in terms of the Supergirl Digest that we're covering, um, I was lucky enough to get that as a gift uh, from Martin Gray. Uh, about two years ago, he sent it to me. I'd never owned it before. And so I asked Marvin, boy, if you were going to make an in-stock trade recommendation, what would you pick? And he picked Supergirl Cosmic Adventures in the Eighth Grade. Uh, by uh, Landry Walker and Eric Jones, which was a six-issue miniseries uh, a few years ago, which really was truly all ages that, you know, kids could read it and adults could read it. And those two guys clearly loved Supergirl. It had all of the Supergirl tropes and Easter eggs and the whole thing. It is 144 pages in full color. Its original price is $12.99, but on in-stock trades, it's only $7.14. You save forty five percent, and I loved this series. It's definitely well worth buying. I can't before you go any further. I adore it. I absolutely love it. I, I bought it for my daughter. She read it when she was probably I don't know eight or nine herself. Just absolutely thought it was the bee's knees, and she's read it many times since then. I enjoy the heck out of the thing. Now I have a question. You mentioned it has all the Supergirl tropes in there. It had Lena Luther in the story. Yeah. When did, when did Lena enter the Supergirl mythos? Yeah, it was it was sort of I would say um, I wouldn't want to say halfway because her uh, run in action is very long, but sort of early on in her action run when she first gets introduced, she um, arrives as a girl who has ESP and doesn't realize that she's Lex Luthor's sister. She's Lena Thorl, um, uh, has ESP. <laughs> yeah, she has ESP because she touched a. A cosmic space brain that uh, Lex was experimenting on that gave her these powers, and then. When Lex became a supervillain, the family said, we're going to change our name and take off. And so those two were good friends um, for a long period of time, even up through the Superman family stuff. Wow. Okay. I thought she was a more recent introduction. I did not realize that. Okay. Very cool. Yeah. Have you read the Supergirl Cosmic Adventures of the 8th Grade, Rob? I read the first couple, and I, I was certainly very charmed by it. I don't think I kept up with it because I just sort of figured it – I just wasn't the audience, but I remember being very happy that it existed. Okay, fair enough. It's it's a joy. It's a joy. It really is. So, it, and, it really and if you don't is. buy it for yourself, folks, buy it for somebody that you know. And then for my uh, second in stock trade, just because Martin was the guy that sent me the digest, and to sort of key into Supergirl, I'm picking the Final Crisis trade paperback new edition, which is a trade that contains Final Crisis 1 to 7, Final Crisis Submit number 1, Final Crisis Superman Beyond 1 and 2, DC Universe number 0, and Batman 682 to 683, written by Grant Morrison, a uh, guy from Scotland, much like Martin. 
with art <laughs> by uh, J.G. Jones and a variety of other artists. It's 352 pages, originally 1999, uh, but in stock trade price of 10.99, you save 45%. And I not only picked it because Morrison is a Scotsman like Martin, but there's actually a panel in Final Crisis where they show Supergirl's apartment where they you see that she like is painting and there's a guitar and there's like a sewing machine and pictures of different costumes that she's trying and I thought that panel kind of encapsulated the many lives of Supergirl, especially at that time in comics, when she was really kind of an angsty, hateful teen in her own book. Very cool. Awesome. Well, Rob, um, first of all, I'm glad you pimped uh, something like that, Final Crisis, because somebody had to pimp Final Crisis. It wasn't going to be me, that's for sure. <laughs> hey, listen, I'm, I'm going to be the guy that stands out there and says, Superman sings Darkseid um, uh, and destroys him. He just, uh, Superman destroys Darkseid by singing, and that alone makes it worth it. If you say so. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Rob, what you got, buddy? Okay. Uh, I'm, I'm left flummoxed at that. Uh, I've got the, the Daring Adventure, Daring New Adventures of Supergirl trade paperback volume one. It's by our pal Paul Kupperberg. The art is by Carmen Infantino and Bob Oxner. This reprints the f first 12 issues of the early 80s Supergirl, t Super, I was about to say TV series, Supergirl solo <laughs> series, uh, where as a Supergirl relocates from Metropolis to Chicago and meets evil in new forms, including the villainous Psy. Plus, while battling the evil force known as the Gang, Kara stumbles upon a conspiracy that threatens all of her new hometown. It says guest starring the Doom Patrol. I love uh, Paul Coverberg just so shamelessly trying to you know boost sales by sticking in a, a hot title like the Doom Patrol. Uh, this is, um, <laughs> as we've talked about in previous episodes, I don't think any of us, but I'll just speak for myself, we're not a particularly big fan of Infantino's work in the 80s, but I really like the stuff he did for Supergirl because he was inked by Bob, Bob Oxner, who I really thought gave um, Infantino's work a nice kind of uh, futuristic sheen to it. So this is a really handsome book. Uh, the normal price is $19.99. In stock trades price is only $10.99. That's 45% off. And it features a recolored and reconstituted cover from the original Daring New, Super, Daring New Adventures Supergirl book. It's a really handsome volume, so pick it up. Um, it has Reactron in it. Uh, <laughs> TV uh, star Reactron. He made it to the TV, and then Psy is in it, and she's going to be on the Supergirl television show this season. So I Amazing. think they're really mining that. And <laughs> and just to echo what you're saying about Infantino and Oxner, I honestly think the pages of her as Linda Danvers in this book are ten times as beautiful as the Supergirl pages. It really looks wonderful with those two guys. Hmm. All right. They were they were a really good combo. Well, you know, um, Volume 2 is also out there on in-stock trades, by the way. And uh, we, we, to be fair, in Who's Who, we gave the villains of this particular book a pretty hard time. Oh, we absolutely, yeah. I'm, but but Copperberg's laughing all the way to the bank because he's getting those creator yes. royalty checks. So what does he care about two nerds making fun of him? Right, I was actually going to say, we adore Copperberg. In fact, he was a guest on our Hero Points podcast a couple years back. So yeah, fantastic. Uh, my pick is, well, uh, quite honestly, Martin took mine, so uh, which was the Supergirl in the eighth grade. So instead, I have picked one that I didn't even realize was going to be on in-stock trades. It's the coloring book for D, uh, for Supergirl, which is pretty cool. It's 96 pages, black and white, of course, because it's a coloring book. Normally retails for $15.99. Uh, now, this is the adult coloring book, by the way. This is the ones that you would see in Books a Million, where they have the racks and racks and racks of adult coloring books. And and a lot of it's just old images of Supergirl, whether it be, you know, covers or just pinups or whatever. So is it truly color book, uh, coloring book material? Not necessarily, but you get to color like you're coloring a comic. So it's pretty cool. Anyway, um, normally retails for $15.99. You can get in-stock treats for $8.79. 
that's 45% off. That's amazing. And again, if you don't pick this up, pick this up for you, pick it up for someone else in your family. You know, there's undoubtedly, you know, some young girl who loves the Supergirl TV series and some of these trades and some of this coloring book would be fantastic for them. So please go out and visit in stock trades and let them know the fire and water podcast sent you, sent you. All right, let's get into the discussion this time. Now, this was my pick, uh, Supergirl volume, because I wanted to have Ange on the show. Rob didn't. He fought me tooth and nail and said, we're not having it. But I said, damn it, <laughs> Ange is going to be on the show. And, uh, again, it's best true. of DC Blue Urban. <laughs> That's exactly what happened, yeah. Best of DC. We had a fight at Heroes Con. I mean, it was bloody. I mean, just it was like, you know, aisle 100, blood, clean up, please, nerd fight. Uh, best of DC, Blue Ribbon Digest, number 17, Many Lives of Supergirl. It was on sale July 9th, 1981. Our thanks to Mike's Amazing World of Comics for that information. The cover, it took me a minute. I couldn't believe it. It's by George Perez and Dick Giordano. Now, this has got to be some early Perez work because look at his signature. Like, what is that? What is like squared off? I, you don't see that too often. Right. Thanks for backing me up, guys. Okay. Um, <laughs> the images of Linda Danvers in the background doing sort of a Mary Tyler Moore hands up in the air in front of the city, liberated young woman, and Supergirl is flying away from her, like, you know, flying towards the reader, very happy, very joyous, beautiful. Of course, I mean, it's Perez and Giordano. Of course, it's going to be beautiful women. And it was 100 pages and went for 95 cents. Whew. Now, Rob, where can they see uh, this wonderful image in the cover? And, and they can look at the signatures and go, oh, Shag was right. I wonder why those guys were so quiet about that. Uh, they won't say that, but you can find the images over on our gallery post, which is at our website, fireandwaterpodcast.com. Awesome sauce. Well, let's get into the stories. What well, do you say, I, guys? Well, I do want to say about the cover. I do love that Kara is doing the uh, Vulcan salute. I think that's pretty cool. And I love, oh, the, uh, and I love that the city uh, looks like Coruscant. It's just, it's just all these buildings. There's no trees. There's no nothing. There's no people. It's all just this technical stuff. I think it's a, it's a really surrealistic kind of image, but I, I love it. I think it's great. I mean, who can't, you can't beat President Giordano as a combination. You know, I wonder yeah. if uh, Giordano actually inked that city because look how bold and straight all those lines are. I wonder mm-hmm. if he farmed that out to somebody. I, I think it's a beautiful cover. Yeah, I think it's lovely. All right. Well, inside we've got, what is this, uh, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven stories. Really six stories. They split one apart for some reason. Uh, and why don't we get into it? Rob, I think you've got the, the first one. Okay. The uh, first story is The Great Supergirl Mirage from Action Comics number 256. It's by Otto Binder, I believe that's how you say it, and Jim Mooney. Uh, while secretly performing good deeds as Supergirl, a boy from Midville Orphanage, the appropriately named Dick Wilson, takes a picture of her. He suspects Linda Lee is Supergirl when he sees her in turn in a report that she finished at super speed. Linda makes an excuse that she had a copy of the finished report elsewhere, but Dick is not convinced. While looking for minerals for geology class, Dick tricks Linda by throwing a dummy of himself off a cliff. Because <laughs> sure, why not? Linda's x-ray vision ignites chemicals which Dick coated the dummy with. Linda causes lightning to strike the dummy to cover her mistake. Dick is still convinced she is Supergirl. Dick then tries to trick Linda again with heavy dumbbells. Linda falls for the trick, but her powers allow her to once again cover her mistake and protect her identity. She is distressed of the situation when a Supergirl robot arrives to perform amazing feats at the show. Dick is now convinced that he saw the Supergirl robot sent by Superman and that Supergirl does not exist. Well... <laughs> and you got to help us out here. <laughs> Put this in some context for us, would you, buddy? <laughs> 
So here's what I'll say. This is the fifth story ever that she appeared in, right? So she appears in Action 252. This is 256. And there are so many parts of the um, early action run, sort of in the uh, stories before she gets revealed, that play up here. So the first is, you know, she can't even exist, right? Superman has said, you are my emergency secret weapon. You have to stay hidden in that orphanage. Don't let anybody know at all that you exist. So she has to do things like fly miles and miles and miles in the, uh, in the sky so nobody can see her. Or, as we'll see in this story and others, burrow under the ground like Bugs Bunny taking a left turn at Albuquerque. <laughs> um, you know, so like she, so truly we see that. And then there's always somebody who's like, boy, I thought I saw a flying girl who was Supergirl and she's panicked. Another part of this story is that, um, you know, Superman is like, if you reveal yourself, I'm going to banish you from Earth. He really is kind of a jerk. Um, and you can see that play out in some of these stories where she just looks completely like, I mean, honestly, like she's having a, an anxiety attack when it's like, oh, my God, if Superman found out what would happen. Um, the other thing that I'll say is that that Midvale Orphanage has like the best stored basement ever because <laughs> like Dick. Dick Wilson makes this mannequin that he coats with chemicals that will like ignite with x-rays and she creates X kryptonite in this chemical lab down there. Like this is really a well-funded orphanage. Um, so to see things like that, um, don't surprise me. And then in Midvale all the time, people are falling off of cliffs or driving <laughs> off of cliffs or being thrown <laughs> off of cliffs. So there are all sorts of tropes that happen in here that really end up repeating themselves over and over. Um, that, just makes this endearing to me. Is okay, it, there. Thank. Go ahead, Rob. Is, that, that, he, he keyed on something I want to ask in a minute. Go ahead. I was gonna say, is Midvale like twenty thousand feet above sea level? Like, why are there so many cliffs and all these ledges? <laughs> yeah. I don't understand. Yeah, yeah. Um, there are all these like winding mountain roads with what appear to be like toothpick guardrails that people just like bash through all the time. So and wooden uh, bridges. Yeah, and wooden bridges, and so it. Um, I think it's supposed to be. Um, like a suburb of Metropolis. It's supposed to be close enough that, that, you know, it wouldn't be a long trip for him, uh, for Superman to come visit. But I don't know. There are all of these winding roads. It's just amazing. <laughs> now you, you said this was endearing to you. Okay, good. Yeah. I, I need that feedback because I read this thing and, and I, I remember why I think I'm allergic to the silver age sometimes. Like yeah. it just gets under my skin. How like, she doesn't even get to save the day. She spends all this time trying to hide from the boy. And then in the end, it's Superman that saves her. He sends the robot because he's spying on her. And it's like, and she's like, oh, thank goodness. But it's really like, wow, what a way to take away any ability for her to determine the course of her life. Yeah, he, she really lives in the shadow of him uh, up until that point when um, he reveals her to the world. And so there's all of these things where he's like, well, to teach her a lesson, I said that she has a death touch and made her fly off of the earth. Like he really does a lot of bad stuff. Oh, um, uh, and so, but I think that she's just um, charming and innocent and wants to, you know, um, you know, make people proud of her and wants to be loved that, I don't know, I can just, um, you know, I can just buy into it and, and read it for the time that it came out. Okay, that's fair. Oh, I, I I like Supergirl in the story a lot. I, it's it's Dick Wilson that's the tool. At the, he's yeah. the one I'm just like, I'll leave her alone, you jerk. Well, he um uh, he becomes Dick Malvern and um, 
is uh, part of her story all the way up through Daring New Adventures in the you know early 80s. And then a version of him appears in the Peter David comic. So one of the things that you'll see is that there are certain uh, names and words that appear in all of the different incarnations of Supergirl. So um, when she gets uh, adopted and becomes Linda Danvers, not Linda Lee, he gets adopted and becomes Dick Malvern, not Dick Wilson. <laughs> it, it, there's the one. There's one artistic panel that just gets me. It's on page eight of the digest, six of the actual story, where she is actually snorting iron filings. Um, yeah. She's drilled out the. the the, the iron bar, and she it literally, you see a line of iron filings coming out of it and snorting up her nose. And then later on, she's blowing them back out through her nose like a snot bullet or something into the other dumbbell. It's just like, oh, that's so gross. Oh, my God. What is that doing to her insides? When when did Otto Binder change his name to Bob Haney? When did that happen? Yeah. I'm not familiar with that. <laughs> oh, I think Steve Skeets is uh, connected yeah. to Bob Haney. Yeah. So we'll find oh, out yeah. in a while there, yeah. buddy. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, uh, before we now, has, by the way, is this Dick guy? Has he shown up on the Supergirl TV show at all? You know, um, they uh, in the season in the season one premiere, she's at a bar on a blind date when Alex's plane goes down. Yeah. And they had said that that was uh, Dick Malvern initially, but then in the second season, um, uh, he turns out to be a guy that had feelings for um, Alex, saw um, Kara do some superpowers, and then becomes a villain in the second season, um, basically putting Alex in like a Saw-like death trap unless <laughs> unless Supergirl will free his father from jail. Oh my gosh. I yeah. must have missed that episode. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Crazy. All right. Well, uh, any more context or history we need before we move on to the next one? Uh, I don't think so. We'll see some of these other things again. Uh, okay. So, perfect. All right, fair enough. Yeah, we're about to see some more of those uh, high bridges in just a second here. Okay. So we're moving on to the next one, which is The World's Greatest Heroine, Part 1. And, and my first question is, how did I end up with the longest stories to cover? And, more specifically, the ones that were not already covered on Angie's blog. I'm just saying, you know, because I know Rob's lifting his recaps from there. So this is not very fair. Uh, I'm, not, I'm not happy about this. I struck first. We saved... Yeah, we saved the best for you. This, this I think, is um, uh, the one that you're about to review is probably the most famous of all of the stories that are in here. This one has a pretty iconic cover for her and is pretty beloved by Supergirl fans, so I'm ready for you to trash it. I was going to say, let's see how I treat it. Okay, here we go. <laughs> so it's the world's greatest heroine. The second part of it's going to be called The Infinite Monster. So it's really just one big 24-page story. Or if you're to believe the inside cover of this uh, digest, it's actually the world's greatest headline. So, interesting. Uh, written by Jerry Siegel. You might have heard of that guy. Art by Jim Mooney. Reprinted from Action Comics number 285 from 1962. So, after three long years of operating in secret, Superman has decided it's now time to reveal Supergirl's existence to the public. This is a big deal. Now, because he's a male chauvinist pig, he dictates the time of the reveal and he insists that he must be there when she reveals to her adopted parents the Danvers. Now, hours before the scheduled reveals is supposed to happen, a collapsing bridge on these infamous gorges in Midvale uh, forces Linda Lee to reveal her secret in order to save the Danvers uh, from dying because their car starts plummeting into this gorge. Now, realizing that she has disobeyed Superman's edict about revealing her secret identity at the appropriate time, she's worried, as Ange mentioned, that sort of anxiety, she's worried that Superman's going to change his mind about introducing her to the world. And all of this just goes on to demonstrate how a Superman is an incredibly controlling dick, uh, not to be confused with Dick Malvern. 
Thankfully, Superman turns out to be a benevolent dictator in this uh, in this instance and forgives Supergirl. They reveal Kara's true origin to her adopted parents, and then they build her these elaborate secret tunnels to help her keep her dual identity a secret, just like Clark had when he was Superboy, because apparently Superman's making all the decisions around here. Then the truly big reveal of Supergirl's existence is broadcast on television across the world. Now, to be exact, uh, Superman builds a device which will interrupt every TV signal on the planet. I'm not making this up. He said it. Again, in keeping with Superman being a complete controlling douche nozzle. Um, This revelation sends cheers all over the Earth and the universe. And after the celebrations are done, Superman heads off to a mission in the 50th century, leaving Supergirl to defend the Earth while he's gone. Soon, the, now this is where the Infinite Monster chapter starts. Soon, the world is menaced by a creature known as the Infinite Monster. It's a jar. Jar- gigantic creature who uh, Luke Jackanity would love, but he's so large, all you can see is its legs tromping across across the land. I do love that effect. And the creature's rampage is sending Supergirl, she's going after it, she soon finds that it's a simple brute is not going to have, I'm sorry, her brute force is not going to have the effect on the monster that she's hoping. So thinking fast, she constructs a crude missile with a note inside and throws it through the time barrier to the 30th century. There is intercepted by the Legion of Superheroes who read the note for her and uh, for assistance, and Brainiac 5 sends her back a shrinking ray device, proving that apparently the immensely capable Supergirl can't handle an emergency without a man coming to her aid. She gets this shrinking ray, uh, which is unfortunately destroyed by accident, so she recreates it quickly because a man built it for her in the first place, so it works out okay for her. She uses the ray to, re- to reduce the monster to a smaller size, allowing her to put the creature in a special bottled prison in the Fortress of Solitude. Now, with their first public mission a huge success, Supergirl is once more celebrated by everyone, including the President of the United States. And she thinks about how pretty the, the President's wife is. When Superman returns to the present, he congratulates Supergirl for a job well done and publicly thanks her. And as a reward for a job well done, Superman creates her very own room in the Fortress of Solitude. Because, you know, he wants to make sure he's in control. Dick. And that's the end. So, beloved, huh? Oh, yeah. I mean, you skipped over a lot of the best parts, I'm going to be honest. <laughs> well, I mean, come on. It's, uh, this, yeah. this, we got 100 pages to cover here, so I just, you sure, know, sure. Tell, tell me the good stuff I missed. Um, so uh, it's really like a primer, I would say, for the Supergirl character. So, um, you know, she had a backup feature in action. This is really her issue, right? Superman is the guest star here. This is her story. So you get the retelling of her origin about how Argo City was blown off of Krypton and had the dome under it and everybody survived, but then the floor became kryptonite, so they had to cover it with lead, but then meteors went through the dome, which exposed the kryptonite, and so she had to be rocketed away. And that explains how she can be younger than Superman, back then, right? She she was born on Argo City and then rocked away. So you get her origin. And then when he reveals her, I mean, it's so uh, such a sign of the times, right? You get Nikita Khrushchev saying, right. uh, you know, how can the snip of a girl be mightier than all the Soviet atomic bombs put together? It must be a capitalist hoax. And, uh, <laughs> and then, yeah, right. And then Luthor says, you know, well, I was going to escape, but if she captures me, then I'll be the laughingstock because this girl did it, right? So a lot of the things in this are like, can a girl be a superhero? Can a girl be a superhero? Um, and then you even get to see some of her boyfriends, right? So you get to meet Jero, the um, the merman who she likes, and then later on, Brainiac 5. So there are all of these parts of um, her growing mythos that are kind of all reviewed here, um, which I thought was fine. And yes, we even get 
Dick Malvern, who she has to like fly away to be Supergirl to fight the infinite monster. So she puts him in like a labyrinth at a state fair, building a maze that he's <laughs> going to be stuck in forever, which I thought was also, you know, at least smart. But throughout the whole thing is as she's like, you know, bouncing off this thing's feet. First, we see the army and then we see little boys and all of these people are like, you know, is she really going to be able to be a hero? And then in the end, with some help, she does defeat this thing, and then everyone's like, "Wow, you really are a superhero!" So, you know, she didn't. This she was out of the orphanage, right? She didn't have to hide herself anymore. So this reveal was a big deal, and uh, so I think if you ask Supergirl fans, they'll like rank this as one of the top Silver Age issues overall. Now, I have to say, real quick, I know I'm interrupting you a bit, but I really yeah. did love this story. I actually did. I just couldn't stand Superman in the story. Like, I really hated Superman in this story a whole lot. Everything else I thought was really charming, really endearing. I love the scenes of the populace cheering her, everyone, like, women wanting to be her, men wanting to be with her. I mean, just there's a lot of adoration. You really get the sense that she is a hero that's represented – I'm sorry, that's uh, that's uh, appreciated across the planet, and I, just, I really enjoyed that. I enjoyed her. She's such a fresh, sweet person. You know, she's very likable, very very nice. So I, I really enjoyed the story, that side of it. I just was – if you notice during the summary, most of my fun was picking up Superman there. Yeah, he treats her awfully throughout the Silver Age. There's no doubt about it. And then I was a little mad that Brainiac 5 had to solve that problem for because I felt like she could have done it totally by herself. She didn't need his help. Yeah, that's true. But, Rob, what would you think of it? Oh, I thought it was really cute. I mean, Angie, your, your comment that this is like a very famous Supergirl story – that makes me think of the fact that there were moments from this that are literally reproduced by Ross Andrew in the Superman and his incredible fortress of solitude treasury. When it sort of trip hammers through Superman's history and there's literally panels from the story redone, uh, which is like when Supergirl, Superman introduces Supergirl on television. So I thought that was really cute. So yeah, it's, I, I like the first part of it way more than the second um, because it does all the historic stuff. There's no way that Jack Kennedy did not hit on Supergirl. I guarantee that happened. We don't, we, don't, we, don't, we don't see it, but I know it happened. I even like the Legion appearance in this, which I didn't think I would say. So uh, it's it's really cute. It's I think it's a really cute story. And Jim Mooney does does some great work. I love the last panel of Linda laying on her bed with her like her Bobby Soxer look. Uh, that is just a classic sort of teenage art. Kind of thing. She looks super wholesome. I think that's really well done. I mean, that's part of the reason Jim Mooney's reputation as like the Supergirl artist, I think, persisted for so long because he just does such a good job. Um, one little thing I, I do need to mention is on the opening page, the very first one, there's a credit box, and creators weren't given credit for, at DC Comics in the early '60s, so I assume that this was a- added for the digest. It's very frustrating that even as late as 1981. DC could not be bothered to get Jerry Siegel's name spelled correctly. Uh, <laughs> uh, it's like, oh it, you know, he didn't do much for you guys other than, oh, I don't know, co-create the character that the whole company is built upon. You know, <laughs> it would have hurt you that much to figure out how you spell his name, but okay, whatever. Well, yeah, it's a, it's a lovely story. I, the Jiminy art is absolutely great. Uh, like especially pay, like the the page I can't tell what this is it's it's thirty of the digest Rob mentioned with the Legion where there's a good close up of Supergirl after she's looking at the monster in the bottle and it's like the fourth panel she's just a, it's pretty blonde you know pretty face of her she's just looking smiling I just I love all of it I love the I love the whole book the whole story I should say 
Yeah, you know that panel um, shag, you see that she kind of has like a finger to the side of her like face, like yeah. thinking. That is a quirk that she carries throughout the Silver Age. So that's also sort of one of the famous uh, uh. Um, things that Mooney did all the time. And Mooney, you know, she ran an action comics from 252 as a backup feature from action 252 to action 376, except, except for like a handful of issues that were reprints, that's 10 years. And he did every story except her first appearance in 252, um, which was done by um, Al Plastino. So he really was the, you know, he was like the Kurt Swan of, of Supergirl, sort of drawing wow. that length. That's impressive. Yeah, that's amazing. Yeah. Man, okay. Well... Sorry if I was a little too uh, harsh during the recap, but uh had to have a little fun with it, especially with <laughs> Kal-El. Yeah. That guy. All right. Uh, Ange, I think you're up next. All right. So I get to cover Supergirl Goes to College, which is from Action 318, written by Leo Dorkman with art by Jim Mooney. Uh, the story starts with Supergirl graduating from high school, and she says that she's as proud of her cap and gown as she is of her Supergirl costume. And she uh, is delighted to find out that she has won a scholarship from the Stanhope College. She won the Stanhope Character Scholarship, which is given to the student that has perfect conduct, modesty, and excellence in character. And there's an interesting panel where she says that, you know, she wasn't sure if she was going to go to college because that might interfere with her career as Supergirl. Uh, so she's worried that uh, she wasn't sure if she was going to go to college because she thought that that might interfere with her career as Supergirl. But then she says that it would look strange if she turned down that uh, scholarship. So she decides to go, to which her stepfather says, it's a wise decision because your example will encourage other youngsters to continue their education. So she heads to Stanhope College, which we'll talk about later. Um, and Dick Malvern graduates and he's going to State Tech, which is down the road. And when uh, Linda arrives on the Stanhope campus, she sees two girls being hazed as part of an initiation to join the Alpha Lambda sorority. One girl has to push a peanut up a hill with her nose, and the other has to stand in a very freezing uh, fountain. And Supergirl is kind of, uh, Linda is upset by both of these things and helps both of these girls, uh, the first one by blowing the peanut up the hill and the second by uh, heating her up with her heat vision. Um, and she actually hopes that she'll get asked to join this sorority so that she can teach them all a lesson uh, because she doesn't think that this hazing is appropriate. And then we meet the head of the Alpha Lambda sorority, the well-named Donna Storm. And Donna <laughs> is, yeah, Donna is not happy. She thinks um, Linda shouldn't be asked to join the sorority because Midvale is a hick town and Alpha Lambda is very exclusive. But the other girls feel that because she won the scholarship, she should be asked. So Donna decides that she is going to just haze the heck out of Linda throughout this whole issue. And so she continues to put more and more impossible tasks in front of her. So first, Linda has to go to a department store and kiss and date the star that happens to be in the store window. And when Linda arrives, it turns out that it's a monkey. Uh, but then in a twist of fate, it turns out that it's Beppo, the super monkey, and Linda knows him, and he picks her up and flies her around, and everybody's like, how cool is it that she flew? So she wins that one, and then she has to go to a um, – Donna makes her go to the student dance in a torn and very shabby dress, which upsets Linda because she wants to look good for Dick, but – she decides that she'll, uh, you know, thwart this by creating a false lunar eclipse by throwing a massive meteorite in front of the moon so that nobody can see how bad her dress is. 
And then she, uh, Donna says, fine, you have to make a, pick a mascot for our school team and bring it to the football game. But there's an a animal plague happening. So all of the animals are quarantined. But she brings Comet, the super horse, to be there. And suddenly Donna starts to wonder, like, could Linda either be Supergirl or no Supergirl? So she decides to um, up the ante. And she tells Linda, she says, I'm sure that you're getting some help. From now on, you know, you can't use any superpowers or get any help. Um, I'm going to make you figure out uh, in a group of foreign exchange students what country they're all from, uh, and you can't get any wrong. And so Linda decides to set up a, a series of flags, knowing that each of these students will stand in front of the flag of their nation and salute, because that's what kids did back in the early 60s. Um, and so she you know, thwarts this hazing ritual. And, and by now, the other sorority sisters are sort of looking at Donna like, what's the deal? You know, she's she's defeated you, let her in. But Donna has one more trick up her sleeve. The old college uh, library is getting demolished for a new one, and she asks Linda to move all of the books from the old library to the new one within a day. And quite surprisingly, Linda comes up with a great idea, asking every student to check 10 books out and bring them across to the new building. So just like that, she um, is able to defeat that hazing. Um, and then things get a little crazy. Donna gets so upset. She gets so convinced that Linda is Supergirl. She decides that the right thing to do is to drive the car that the two of them in uh, through a flimsy guardrail on a high mountain uh, to force Linda to save her. Um, Linda uses some quick thinking to hypnotize Donna uh, into not realizing what's happening and then plops the car on top of a enormous hay bale that she made by combining a bunch of nearby hay bales. Um, all of this teaches Donna a lesson. At the end, she says, I've been cruel and heartless. I tried to keep you out of our sorority because I was a snob and I couldn't break your spirit, but now you're in. And at the end, there is a new pledge not to haze any sorority sisters in the future. My favorite part is when they put Donna in the Phantom Zone at the end, um, <laughs> which is where she absolutely deserved to be. This Donna person is horrible. I mean, yeah. I genuinely was getting angry at her reading this story. That's how effective it was. <laughs> It really is almost insane, the amount of things that she makes her go through, um, uh, uh, just building on top of one after the other. And with all of these other, you know, like, oh, there just happens to be an animal quarantine in the city, so find an animal to be our mascot. So, a little crazy. I will well, say, though, there's a lot of stuff in here that, so that Stanhope College. Yeah, um, I, okay, I've heard of that, like, before. I couldn't place it. Is, is that, like, a real place, or is it just some freemish from comics? Yeah, so I only know Stanhope from the comics and from Supergirl. So she is a student at Stanhope for a bulk of this run in Action Comics, um, and even into her run in Adventure Comics, we're about to get to. Um, but in the Peter David run, uh, Peter David actually has um, her visit that college, uh, and she actually gets into a little bit of a skirmish with Steel in that issue over free speech uh, in a very interesting story. And then l later in uh, sort of the Sterling Gates run, or, or in that uh, volume, uh, Kelly Sue DeConnick has um, uh, Linda Lang, at that point, get invited to go to Stanhope Academy. So that name, again, has sort of carried forward with all of these different incarnations. The, the, the things that, um, what's it, Donna? Donna makes him do to yeah. get an Alpha Lambda is just absolutely demeaning. I mean, rolling the peanut up the hill with your nose is horrible. Um, the water's bad enough. It just, I mean, the monkey, I mean, it gets ridiculous. I think my favorite moment in here was when Linda 
solves the final problem without using superpowers, which, by the way, I totally would have flipped on the bird and used my superpowers to solve all these things. But <laughs> anyway, where she gets everyone to take a, 10 books out of the library. That's just like it's such an elegant real-world solution that didn't require crazy comic science. I'm like, yeah, yeah, take that, Donna, yeah. That's my favorite triumphant moment in the, in the story. I would have uh, I would have melted Donna's insides with my heat vision. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, or maybe just let her die in the car wreck at the end, right? Nobody knows you're in the car. You can oh, just let her true. go off. Yeah. That's right. I mean, people yeah. must die every day with all those crazy curves and mountains and valleys around that place. Auto insurance for we live in Midvale is like $1,000 a week or something. It's just absurd. <laughs> Oh man, it, uh, this one was nuts. This was uh, I, I liked it because I liked the ending where you know she triumphs over all that. But I mean, it was very frustrating to read, not because it was poorly written or too silver agey, but just the the horrible things that were happening were making me so mad. So I, again, effective writing. It did it did exactly what it wanted to do. It got the reader involved. Yeah, I can't imagine anybody reading that and saying, "Oh, Don is just misunderstood. She's pretty evil." <laughs> Now you, you said you wanted to say something about um, uh, Dick going down, down, uh, going to school down the street uh, earlier on no, during the recap. Uh, uh, no, I, I wanted to talk about Stanhope, with, uh, oh, which okay. I sort of touched on. My misread. I'm terribly sorry about that. All right. Well, I think uh, the next one is <laughs> okay. Rob, yeah. everyone, buckle up. <laughs> next up, uh, Crypt of the Frozen Graves from Adventure Comics number four twenty four by Steve Skeets. Tony DeZuniga and Bob Oxner. Everybody get comfortable. This one's going to leave a mark. Linda Danvers, junior reporter, gets a tip from a mob informant, Bruce Ryan. Ryan knows that Linda has Supergirl as a friend, and he has been giving them both some small tips here and there. One thing he won't do is give up the name of the boss of the syndicate. Ryan knows that anyone who has tried to rat on or testify against the boss has mysteriously disappeared. Later that night, Ryan calls Linda again. He sounds spooked and refuses to give either Linda or Supergirl any more information. As Linda is listening, a shot is fired at Bruce. When Kara discovers that Bruce is hiding out, uh, where Bruce is hiding out, she thinks the best plan isn't to confront him wearing the big red S. Instead, she decides the best way to get the ladies' man to give up the name of the syndicate is to seduce him. Gone is sweet Linda. Dressed to kill and literally falling into Bruce's arms, Linda is able to start up a whirlwind romance with the mob enforcer. While out during the day, Bruce gets shot at and seems to toss Linda into harm's way as a human shield. Of course, he doesn't know this is Linda Danvers. Later, during a romantic dinner, the syndicate tries to kill Bruce by tossing a grenade into the dining area. <laughs> Instead of using her powers, Linda actually pauses to see if Bruce is brave enough to toss himself onto the grenade, a move that would surely kill him. And when he shows his true colors by picking, running out the back door, Linda has no choice but to toss herself onto the grenade to save the other people. She stops breathing and plays dead until the restaurant is cleared by police and she also sneaks out the back door. Supergirl decides that the best course of action is to buy a ghost costume, of course, apply some makeup, and appear in Bruce's apartment as Linda's spirit and attempt to scare the name of the syndicate boss out of him. But before her fright tactics can work, the man who tossed the grenade suddenly materializes in the apartment as well, appearing rather ghostly himself. Shocked by this, Supergirl pauses, enough time for the ghost to pull out a very solid machine gun, riddling Bruce with bullets, and then disappear. Overwhelmed with guilt about Bruce's death, Linda sulks at her TV station. And, as if on cue, her co-worker Nasty decides to be, well, nasty. Her emotional resolve frayed, Linda throttles Nasty. Good thing Linda is really hysterical, thinking to herself that she has lost all control of her emotions and might have injured Nasty. 
Before she can say anything, the syndicate's button men, including the trigger man who killed Bruce, show up. They know that Bruce has been talking to Linda, and they need information about a stash of money Bruce has hidden. Linda is brought to the syndicate boss, who decides to torture Linda in hopes of getting the information from her. And then a man in an executioner's garb uses a red-hot candle brand on her. Linda, Linda still wants the information, and so plays along, screaming in we're agony. Not even, we're, we're not even to the craziest part we're yet, almost there. We're getting there, we're getting there. Screaming in agony, pretending to pass out. The gang decides that if brute force won't work, maybe the professor can use science to pry the location of the cash from her. However, Linda scoffs at his attempt, and so he decides that the insult to his intelligence is too great. With no care for potential money information, he uses his greatest device, a teleportation machine, to send Linda into space with all the other witnesses who have gone missing. Of course, the trip home is nothing for Linda. She returns to Supergirl and shuts down the information altogether, smashing the teleportation machine, beating the thugs to a pulp, and bringing the bras to justice. She still can't get over that Bruce died because she was so absorbed in landing the big scoop. If reporting the news is bigger than the safety of those in the news, if that lure is enough to have her go to such lengths that she put protecting someone in the background and her job in the foreground, then she can't be a part of it. She quits, saying she has better things to do with her life than stay in business that exploits people. The end. <laughs> now, I, I found uh, the description uh, for this plot on a, on a Supergirl blog called Comic Bucks Contrary. The guy ran really long, so I apologize for that. <laughs> but uh, I, 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 I appreciate the effort it took to synopsize this completely bonkers story. Uh, we, we, we call, we have Zany Haney. We have to have like, I don't know, we have to come some nickname for Steve Skeets because this story is just nuts. It's just completely nuts. But I also loved it. I, I loved it too. A lot of it had to do with the art though. The art by Zuniga and Oxner is unbelievably great. I've never been a big fan of Tony DeZuniga because I think like his stuff's just too gritty. But Oxner is a perfect inker for him. And there's a panel here. It's page four of the story where Supergirl is floating outside the window and she's going to answer the phone where it really looks like she's floating. And yeah. it is, to me, one of the most beautiful panels I've ever seen. It makes flying characters are so common in comics, but very rarely do they ever look like they're actually floating in air. This, the way the hair is done, the cape, it is gorgeous. I, I'm like, where has this been my whole life? To me, this this combination of Dzunaga and Oxner is perfect. I absolutely love it. Since, since we're talking about beautiful here, all right, let, let's just put it right on the table. There is a ton of cheesecake in this story. I mean, there is countless butt shots of Supergirl in her short shorts. There are shots of her in her underwear. There are shots of her in a Matahari-like outfit. The ghost costume is basically a. a almost a translucent sheet. She's got a, you know, a cocktail dress. I mean, constantly, you know, she's got the sexy, I don't know, St. Pauli girl, you know, outfit when she's going back to work. I mean, there's a lot of it and thank goodness for it. But, uh, it's all beautifully rendered though. And, and the actions dynamic, all the movements, very fluid. It looks like it's a very action oriented story. It's really engaging. Now, Angie, I'm sure you have lots to say about this thing. Uh, yeah. T tell us, tell us about. Put this sort of in context for us. Was this team of Skeets and doesn't I can't say the guy's name. Dizaniga were they together for a while? Um, uh, not too long. Skeets ended up writing uh, some of the stories uh, in the uh, adventure run. So, you know, the action comics run goes from two fifty two to three seventy six. So that's May nineteen fifty nine to May nineteen sixty nine. 
And then she transitions from being the backup feature in action to become the headliner in Adventure Comics, which runs from 381 to this issue, 424. So 1969 to sort of late 1972. And it's very interesting. If you read the initial stories in Adventure, they kind of didn't know what to do with her. So there were stories by Kurt Schaffenberger where there were like pranksters on the campus that she has to stop. And then there were stories by Mike Sikowski where he's trying to make her a little bit more mature and a little bit more of like a young woman as opposed to a girl. And so halfway through that run, she graduates Stanhope and becomes this journalist in San Francisco. Nasty is Nasty Luthor, uh, Lex Luthor's niece from his <laughs> older sister. Yeah, his older sister that we never knew yet. Um, and then there's this guy, Jeff, who is like the man's man, kind of like the uh, Ron Burgundy of the time, I would say, <laughs> that both of these girls are trying to sort of uh, be with. And uh, and what I would say is that when you read that, the whole last year of her run in Adventures is just bonkers. It's just crazy, crazy stories. There's like one where somebody has created sunglasses that if you put them on, you can't take them off and they like mesmerize you and all of the Justice League puts them on and she has to stop them. I mean, it's really crazy. Um, and so this was sort of this transition where they basically said, we're not going to go any farther with her being in San Francisco as a journalist. We're ending that story. She gets fed up with the news business and quits. Um, so, you know, the the name of this digest is The Many Lives of Supergirl. And you can see, right, there's the orphan girl and then the student and now the, you know, the news journalist. And we're going to get a few more jobs that she does um, uh, as she sort of moves through her life. And for me, as I've said before, that was one of the things that I thought was great about her. Like, as a kid, I didn't know what I wanted to be when I grew up. And here's the superhero. She seems to be trying to discover who she is, too. So she became a very relatable uh, part of the Superman family to me. Superman is a mild-mannered reporter in Metropolis and, like, immutable. She's trying to figure things out. Can you imagine if they tried to do this story in a modern comic book? This would be a year's worth of issues. <laughs> that is true and i, I will it. see no i so i love it. I, I genuinely love that i mean like i said this story is nuts we we have to yeah we, it is completely bonkers but i genuinely loved it i just thought all the characterization was really fun i loved how proactive Supergirl is in it her matahari costume totally working for me i, I just <laughs> thought everything about it was just really good and i loved the kind of little moral message of like that you know that she is, I mean, like, unlike Superman, who was always so perfect, uh, and you've hit on this, Angie, in this and in other episodes we've talked about, like, where Superman's so perfect, but Supergirl's not. Like, she's f finding her way through the world, and, like, she gets mad at herself for, like, not keeping her eyes on the prize. And so that's, I love all that stuff. I just think, I really thought this was great. I was, this was, like, revelatory, this story. And I picked this one at random. Mostly because it was written by Steve Skeets. And I was like, well, let me, you know, I'll go for this one. And then as I read, oh. I like, this is just, this is just so fantastic. I said, I love the artwork, I, everything about it. I just thought it was so great. And I'm, and I'm, I'm glad that they went with the whole idea of the many lives of Supergirl. Because that's probably why they picked this is because it's so pivotal to the character's history. So I think this is just, I thought this was just a terrific strip. And one little factoid I do want to mention about Supergirl is that it's this costume that she has on with the little booties. This is the costume that Mego went with when they did the Supergirl doll. And because the booties are a separate accessory, 
the the Supergirl doll is like impossible to find in mint condition. So thanks to this costume, you have hundreds of Mego collectors that you know do not have a perfect Supergirl doll because they can never find those damn booties. How funny. <laughs> I'm glad you brought them up because I mean, of all the different incarnations of her costume throughout this book, this is my favorite, the one with the booties. I, I really like this. Now, I realize that the Superman-style boots are more traditional that's like on the cover, but I love the little booties. They're so cute. It's just it's adorable. I really, really like it. Yeah, this was actually, I think, a reader's suggestion. I think the guy's name was like John Albano with the beaded shorts and the ballet slippers. And then they kind of muted a little bit or changed it a little bit to like the tennis shorts and boots later on. Okay. Um, the one thing I want to say, Shag, is you say like the cheesecake, yeah. that becomes a trope in like uh, in these issues and into the Superman family. There are lots of shots of uh, Linda Danvers like changing into Supergirl and like opening up her shirt with just a bra on underneath that she's getting into costume so when she became a little bit older and an adult um, a lot of these artists played that up so if you could send me a list of those issues I will go ahead and look those up and read those um... uh, yes yeah, drawn by <laughs> Wim Mortimer who you didn't know right <laughs> okay okay I took, a, I took a beating for that thank you um there's a lot of people I didn't know when I started this yeah. podcast adventure. <laughs> the, out of all the stories in the in this digest, this is absolutely my favorite one. A lot of it does have to do with the art. I just really enjoy it. The, in this story, again, when Rob talked about Bonkers is honestly, I lost the plot completely. Like I, after a while, I'm like, I don't know. I understand why what just happened just happened because it made sense from the scene before. But in the scheme of this plot, like these people in space, like, I don't even remember witnesses disappearing. I'm like, what is that? Okay, sure, let's go with it. And uh, it was so funny. I mean, it really does feel like he's channeling Bob Haney. And right now I'm trying to think of some sort of drug trip that starts with S to go with Skeets. And I'm I not know. coming I've up been, with that. I've been working on that all week. <laughs> Can I say that when you turn the page and there's the guy in the executioner's mask with the cattle brand, I was like, <laughs> I said, I said, this can't get any crazier than this. And there were panels of him, like, trying to brand her with her screaming. Like, how did they get by the, the comics code? I have no idea. And then you go, okay, like, it can't top that. And then everybody's shot up in, like, glass Tylenol capsules into space. And I'm like, boy, that this is just weird. So... <laughs> Well, like, you know, when she's in the in the in the restaurant and she got blown up by the hand grenade and everything, she's dead. And I'm thinking no one's noticed that her stomach's not just like, you know, intestines everywhere, because that's what would happen. You know, she's perfectly fine. Her dress is torn, but that's it. You know, and then and then, like you said, the branding and the panel of her screaming, the eighth panel is horrific. But, yeah, I mean, it's not leaving a mark, you know, so oh, geez. Ah, so much fun. I love this. So we got to read some more of these uh, by these guys. This is a, this is an absolute hoot. All right. Well, I think we're on to the next one here. Uh, I think you're up, Ange. Yeah, this is um, Trail of the Madman, which is in Supergirl's first solo title, uh, for, uh, Supergirl number one from November 1972. This is written by Carrie Bates with art by Art Saff. And Art Saff really had sort of a va-va-voom approach uh, to Supergirl. Uh, so the art here is really lovely. So this takes place actually one month. You know, this was book was on the shelf one month after this last story that we just um, heard. And it oh. opens up with a, a big splash page of Supergirl saying that she's going to live her real ambition at last, and that is to become an actor. <laughs> Excuse me. She's going to become an actor. 
So she's going to head to Van Dyer University, despite having graduated Stanhope College, to study drama. And uh, she's been out in space, and she realizes that she almost missed her move-in day and almost missed um, her chance to sign up for classes. So she has to super speed move into her apartment. She empties out the apartment in San Francisco and moves to Van Dyer, moving into the Delta Zeta house, which is sort of like um, a sorority. And uh, her roommate isn't there, but she sees that the, there's a letter addressed to her roommate whose name is Wanda Five, which is a very interesting name. And she looks at all of the stuff that Wanda has uh, brought in, which is like odd statues that seems to be made out of metal from outer space. And she's curious about who this uh, Wanda is going to be. But before she can get too involved in uh, snooping around, she meets Aunt Rosie, who is the house mother, I guess kind of picture like Edna Garrett of the Facts of Life. Um, <laughs> they de she decides that she's going to um, walk to sign up for classes. She walks into a play practice um, uh, when uh, she hears a scream. She's walking by the playhouse, hears a scream on the inside and runs in. And this is the drama class uh, that is being taught by Basil Rosloff, a very famous Hollywood leading man in the past, whose sort of years have got, uh, caught up to him, and now he's just teaching at this college. Subtle. It turns out subtle. Right. It turns name. out that uh, uh, this character, um, uh, there was an actor in the play whose character was supposed to die, and that's why the actor screamed. But it turns out that. Uh, he, this actor has actually died on stage, and uh, the actress who had screamed initially really becomes hysterical. So uh, Linda decides that she's going to massage her to calm her down and just straight up gives her the Vulcan nerve pinch and drops her. Um, <laughs> as, they're, uh, as she's on the stage, she's, uh, Linda sees a blonde girl running out the back door, and she caught a glimpse of her, and after scanning the school directory later on, she sees that the girl that was running away is her roommate, this Wanda Five. Later on, Supergirl is tipped that Ron, who was the actor um, who died, was being blackmailed. And so she wonders if the blackmailer is the one who killed him. So she stops the blackmailer, who denies the murder. And she knows that he's telling the truth because she's feeling his pulse in sort of like a daredevil move. Uh, when his pulse doesn't change, she realizes that um, he was just blackmailing him and didn't kill. Later on, as she's flying back to the campus, she feels mentally compelled to go to a graveyard where she meets Wanda Five, who turns out to have ESP. Um, Wanda had felt uh, sort of uh, mentally that Ron was going to be murdered and had rushed to try to stop it from happening, but arrived too late. She then senses that another attack is going to happen and tells Supergirl that she has to save another student actor. Uh, Supergirl flies into a building where this student named Michael is tied to a log heading into a buzzsaw blade, sort of in like old vaudevillian movies. Um, she saves him uh, from being cut by the, the saw, but it turns out that the saw blade was just made out of cardboard. But he unfortunately has died already. She brings him to uh, the medical examiner who says that uh, he had a weak heart and he died of a heart attack out of fear of being tied up to this log. And he's also examined the first actor who died, who died by wearing toxic makeup uh, while uh, be preparing for the play. Both of these kids were in the drama class and preparing to be leads in the upcoming plays within the drama school. And finally, Supergirl puts it all together. Both of them were going to play leads in plays that Basil uh, Rosloff had made famous during his movie career. Um, there's another actor named Fred who's going to be up for another role. Um, and Supergirl realizes that she has to uh, save this man from being killed. So she streaks to a construction site where Basil has... Uh, 
suspended this guy from the chain of a crane uh, and is going to drop him on a bunch of spikes. Uh, but luckily, Supergirl arrives to stop him. And just like that, the whole mystery is over. Um, Basil gets taken off to jail. Supergirl heads back to her dorm where she meets Sheila Wong and Terry Blake, her new roommates. Um, uh, Terry, uh, Sheila being uh, Asian and Terry being African-American. So there's a nice diverse feel to this. Um, and that ends this first issue of this title. Um, I can tell you that this title lasted about 10 issues. We never see Wanda 5 again. It never really goes anywhere. It's 10 very disjointed stories, and it was canceled. <laughs> wow. Okay. So is it just me, like that very first page where Supergirl's flying, uh, now again, this is Art Saff and Vince Coletta, but it looks sort of reminiscent to me of Supergirl in the Daring New Adventures of Supergirl by uh, Corin Infantino. Does anyone else see that, or is it just me? I think that's just you, Shay. Okay. Never mind. Glad we had this conversation. <laughs> yeah, you can just see that Saf makes her, like, very, very buxom. Uh, he has her... She's just um, really kind of sensuous and sexy throughout this whole uh, run, I would say. I didn't even know that... Until you just explained it just now, I didn't even realize this wasn't The Daring New Adventures of Supergirl. So that she actually had her own series that only lasted ten issues. I had... Yeah. No yeah, clue. so... Right. So this is the whole thing where I say, like, she had this span from like 1959 really to like 1984, where there was always a Supergirl comic on the rack. Um, now, this solo title did go by monthly at the end. Um, but, you know, it's where her action run stops. She picks up an adventure when the adventure run stops. She goes into um, her solo title. When the solo title stops, she gets rolled into Superman family. And then when Superman family stops, she gets her own title in Daring New. So she really has this pretty unbroken streak from 1959 on. Whatever you may think of the story, I do like how they set up the, sort of the ongoing things. I mean, whether Wanda was ever used or not, you know, they introduced the ESP roommate, which could have been a developed story. They introduced the other two friends, as you said, the diversity. I thought that was kind of cool. I, I, I definitely felt like it was a setup to the beginning of, you know, uh, you, you mentioned uh, Mrs. Garrett. It does feel like the sort of the setup to Facts of Life where you introduced all the characters. I like that piece of it. Yeah, you know, I feel it's kind of a shame because it's uh, sort of like a soft reboot, right? You're sort of de-aging her a little bit by putting her back in a school environment, and you could have picked things up. But really, this is 10 issues of one-and-done stories that have nothing to do with the one prior, and you just never really get back to um, any of these characters that they introduced here. I really kind of feel it was a, um, a lost opportunity. I was sure that uh, by her name, Wanda Five was going to eventually join the Legion of Superheroes. That was the vibe I got. <laughs> I was thinking Wanda Five is alive. But, right, you know. yeah, exactly. Uh, so I was going to ask you, Rob, do you think that Basil Rosloff is Boris Karloff or Basil Rathbone or I think, both? I think he's supposed to be both. He's clearly supposed <laughs> to be both. So, And I kind of like the, uh, the the guy being tied to the buzzsaw. That's got a very old-timey movie thing to it as well. I mean, it's like... No, I, I thought this story was a lot of fun. I, you know, we've already talked about my feelings about Vince Coletta, which to me is just like, ugh. Uh, I like Artie Sapp's art a lot. Like, his layouts are really cool, and his, his um, you're right, he's a pretty good, good girl artist. Uh, I would have, I'd like to see his stuff inked by somebody else, because I think he does a really good job here. I like the opening splash page. I mean, you're right, he really is kind of playing up the whole buxom thing. I love Linda's, uh, Hip hugger mod girl outfit, her purple dress, like that's yes, great. That got I mean, my, I, got I, my attention. 
I would love to know, and this sounds like I'm being like a perv, and I don't mean to be, but I would love to know like what the the audience breakdown was for Supergirl comics because is it like was it mostly girls that were venturing into superhero comics or was it boys because they liked looking at pretty girls? You know, I'd love to know what the what what that breakdown was because I noticed like over time that like the only superhero comics that were ever advertised in romance comics were Supergirl and Wonder Woman. They didn't. They didn't advertise any of the other DC comics in their romance line, so they clearly figured that you know th- these were meant for quote unquote meant for girls. But I wonder if if boys other than you, Ange, like ventured out and bought Supergirl comics. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that probably explains a lot about my isolated existence as a child. <laughs> <laughs> I left your wife with a lot of questions. Might also be something to do with why you have a bunch of daughters. So, you know, <laughs> I, I did like, I want to mention not just specific to this story, but ever since the Supergirl, in this volume, ever since Supergirl goes to college, we had Supergirl goes to college, then we had that crazy one where she was a reporter, and now we've got this one. In all of those cases, Supergirl was not saved or assisted by a man. She was the hero of her own story, and that made me very happy through all of these. And these are the mm. these are these are post women's lib stories. You have to figure that has something to do with it. Yeah, I think so. All right, and then uh, so I guess the next one is uh, is me. It's from Superman Family, nineteen sixty. I'm sorry, what issue one sixty five from nineteen seventy four. So I guess this is after Supergirl number ten has come out and that series has ended. Is that right? That is correct. Basically, the next month, uh, once Supergirl ten, which is the last one of her solo issue, happens, the next month she's uh, in Superman Family. Okay, and was it this story? Because this story is a new beginning all over again. Like, a lot of these stories are new beginnings, new careers. Yeah, so remember that um, uh, Superman Family picks up the numbering of Jimmy Olsen. So I would have to go back, but I do think that this is the first one. Um, actually, it's the second issue um, oh, that okay. uh, it picks up uh, after that change in numbers. But okay. this is the first one that has a Supergirl original title because back then Superman Family was they rotated original stories between Jimmy Lois and Supergirl, and then the other two, whoever wasn't the new story, the other two were reprints. Okay. All right. Well, uh, as we start the story, just from an art point, just want to point out she has the traditional Supergirl boots on now that she wore in the early days. The little pixie boots are gone, which is kind of sad. So somewhere along the lines that has changed. It is. uh, The story is Princess of the Golden Sun. It's 20 pages, written by Elliot S. Magan, art by Art Saf again. So he stayed with the book with Vince Coletta. And uh, as I mentioned, reprinted from Superman Family number 165. So two years after starting at Van Dyer University, Linda Danvers waves goodbye as she heads to the Sunshine State also affectionately known as God's Waiting Room. Yes, the beautiful state of Florida. Uh, Linda is taking a position as a counselor at New Athens Experimental School. Now, she's feeling more at home as Linda Danvers than Supergirl, so she's really hoping to lead a life of a normal woman at this new university. Superman even comes to see her off as she's getting ready to leave. Uh, Once Linda explains her desire to be a normal person, he actually switches to his Clark Kent persona to respect her wishes. But then he ruins it all by showing off as Superman and flying alongside her plane to Florida. Jeez, this guy's super ego is insatiable. All right. Uh, meanwhile, we the readers meet a warrior princess of a lost Aztec tribe called Talaka. She is the princess of the Golden Sun. Talaka possesses all kinds of crazy superpowers comparable to Supergirls, uh, and she gets more powerful every time she's defeated. So stick with that. Then we go back to New Athens Experimental School. Linda is settling in, and she's trying to help a troubled student named Eileen. And there's a struggle between Eileen's adopted mother and her birth mother, which is causing the young girl all kinds of terrible stress. 
And the counseling session is interrupted by a challenge from Talaka, the princess of the golden sun. She shows up and challenges Supergirl. Now, while Linda would rather leave the superheroics behind, she has no choice but to stop Talaka. And that's exactly what Supergirl does. She defeats Talaka and imprisons her. But we've mentioned the whole every time Talaka uh, loses, she gets more powerful. She meditates for seven days, and uh, she gains a whole bunch of powers equal to Supergirl's. So Talaka breaks out after seven days. She captures Eileen and decides that she's going to become the first disciple of this new uh, you know, religion she's putting together. And Talaka raises a long, sunken Aztec temple from the Gulf of Mexico. Because let me tell you, they're all over the place in the bottom of the Gulf of Mexico. We're tripping all over them when we're out there fishing, folks. Anyway, uh, the battle continues, and Supergirl deduces that Talaka's power is derived from the magnetic field of the Earth. Huh? Now, I don't have no idea where that came from. Anyway, she uses an electromagnet to nullify Talaka's powers and defeats her again, rescuing Eileen and taking Talaka to prison. Now, Eileen's parental struggles are resolved by some investigation from Linda, and finally Linda pays Clark Kent a visit back in Metropolis to share how wonderful her new job is and how she's really enjoying her life as, uh, and trying to build it as a normal person and not a superhero. And then Clark takes that opportunity to guilt her for not visiting her own parents in Candor more often. Super dickery, folks. That's how he rolls. That's how I had that, that story there. I There's some really wonderful moments in this. I, I know, I, I, I again, I was bashing on Superman. Sorry. He just got on my nerves throughout this whole digest. But there, there's like one page here. Let's see. Right towards the end, when the Eileen and her mother are reunited on page 19, where they're like, you know, the, the mother and her are running to each other, and they're hugging and embracing, and there's tears. I mean, that was really an emotional page. I really like that. Ange, what did you think of this one? Uh, so I – wasn't really happy with this part of her story where she's like, I don't want to be Supergirl anymore. I just want to be a normal girl, which I think kind of like takes away from the fact that she had, had all of these years of being a superhero. Um, at least when something happens, she kind of says, OK, I have to do this to um, to save people. So she does. Uh, it's not as if she shirks her duty. Um and I thought that moving her out of Van Dyer and having her sort of become a mentor for students, I thought was interesting. It kind of aged her a little bit, right? So you start to try to do the math, right? <clears throat> Excuse me. If she's like 28 now because she's done all of this schooling, um, then Superman is probably pushing 40. So you, I think you have to sort of be just a little bit worrisome. Uh, about sort of making sure that that age gap stays the same. But I thought this um, superior girl, this Talaka, was sort of a, an interesting villain for her. I like there's one page where they show her meditating for seven days, that it's just kind of like slowly panning into her, right? So she starts mm -hmm. out small in one panel. Uh, and then like you, I don't kind of understand how she knows uh, that magnetism is the source of her power. She just takes her out. <laughs> and and then I'm thinking like, okay, but won't she just come back stronger seven days from now? Like, why is this the magic uh, a good point. Um, but nevertheless, you know, uh, she goes on to have uh, a pretty good run in Superman Family. I don't know if this is my favorite story of the bunch. I, I'll take the opposite approach. I really like the idea where she was struggling with being Supergirl and wanted to be a normal person for a while because I see Supergirl as a young lady. You know, she's very young at this point. Maybe she's supposed to be 28, but I'm not seeing it. I'm thinking she's 22, 23. Is what she, that's how she feels, you know? Mm. And I love the whole just questioning her position. And, and it wasn't like a nasty, rude attitude. It was just, you know what? I'm not like you, Clark. I'm not the world saver kind of person. I'm I'm trying to find myself. I'm trying, I want to be a normal person. And I think a superhero, especially a young superhero, would go through that period in their life. So I really like that part of the story. Uh, this was, I, I thought it was fine. I liked the artwork a lot. Again, I liked the layouts. I thought there was like the, uh, the, the page 19 with the whole, uh, like the, the, the long panels of the, the women running, you know, 
running together when they they hug and the thing. I thought that was well done. It's just a little I don't know. This one just didn't do a whole lot for me. It was just sort of strange and it seemed uh, kind of like off-brand Supergirl to me. Like it just just felt very strange and just not what kind of I almost want out of a Supergirl story. Not that I have a lot of preconceived notions. So it was it was fine it, compared to the previous two. I thought it was just okay. Talaka did nothing for me, folks. I, I thought she was a ridiculous villain. Just like totally villain of the week would have been in a Marvel team-up issue kind of thing. Like, uh. I did like Clark, so, uh, I, I did like Clark Kent tut-tutting uh, Linda in the last panel. Like I thought that was funny. He's being like a super dad. I thought that was really funny. Um, I'll point out on the second page of this story that there is a panel that really is um, uh, an homage to the cover of Action Two Eighty Five. Uh, that reveal where she's flying down the street with Superman. Um, so there's that story sort of played out again. Oh, and, like yeah. you, and like you say, Rob, um, it's in that Fortress of Solitude trade, and it's also in Action 500. She gets a page right, where they right. review her history, and you see that. So it's a really sort of famous um, uh, uh, picture for her mythology. Yeah, it had become pretty iconic by this point, even even before, you know, comic uh you know comic fandom really became crazy uh yeah everyone knew about this image so yeah that's funny i, I, yeah. I saw it but i didn't even really think about it but it's true hmm. well Ange, we've celebrated some of these stories and we bagged on some of these stories now t- tell me why do you love supergirl so much you know i, I kind of mentioned it at the beginning uh or somewhere along the way you know Growing up when I'm reading comics, sort of like the first comics I were exposed to were uh, like the Mike Grell era Superboy and the Legion of Superheroes and Superman. And I really loved those that power set. I really liked uh, everything that the Kryptonian had going on. And I was like, boy, I'm going to try to be like Superman. But he's just so perfect that after a while you kind of feel like, boy, that's like really hard. You know, it can be frustrating. I can try to aspire to be like him, but I'm never going to be him. And so then I said, well, like maybe I can find another hero that's a little more relatable that kind of has that power set. And so it's like, well, Monel and Ultra Boy jocks with super hot girlfriends. Well, that's not me, right? And, uh, <laughs> you know, maybe like the adventures of Superboy, but he's like working at a general store in what feels to be like 1950s Midwest. That's not me either. Um And so then you start to read Supergirl, and it's like you say, you know, hey, growing up, I was like, I want to be a doctor, or maybe I want to be a physics teacher, or maybe I want to be an English teacher, or maybe I want to be a writer. And you see all of these different iterations of her, and she can get angry and lose her temper, and she can lose and come back and win. And she's also trying to be like Superman, right? She looks at him as a role model, but she's not as infallible as him. Um, And so I just thought the whole thing worked. She was a young character. She was trying to figure things out. I was somebody young and trying to figure things out. Everybody's like, why not Peter Parker, Spider-Man? And I'm like, not those powers, man. I want flight, heat vision, and, and everything else that goes along with it. So, <laughs> um, so that's why I kind of um, I really became a big fan of hers. That's fantastic. And, you know, the, 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 the qualities you just described of her, Melissa Benoist in the TV series really captures all of that. I mean, just yeah. the relatable, the youth, the questioning, all of that making mistakes. I love the Supergirl TV series. I've, I watched a lot with my daughter. I've kind of lost track during the second season just because life got in the way, but um, but really enjoyed everything we've seen with that show. Love the character. Love her portrayal. And, and you just can't help but when she's on the screen, you just sort of... I, I, I'm not trying to... You know, I have a reputation, okay? I'm not trying to say I, you fall in love with her because she's beautiful, but you just... 
you can't help but like her. You can't help be attracted to her. And I don't mean sexually necessarily, but just she, she's somebody you want to be around. She makes you feel positive, you know, the, the character she's portraying. And I love that. Yeah. You know, you see her character, um, uh, the original Supergirl, and you see Melissa Benoist, and they're very optimistic. They they see the best in people. They're bright. They want, like, the world to be a, a beautiful place. Um, and that's why anytime there's a run on Supergirl where she's, like, angsty and dark and moody, it just never works. So, like, when you look at the Loeb, um, Ian Churchill stuff, and you look at the Joe Kelly stuff, and you look at even the early New 52 stuff, where she's, like, really angry, hates Superman, hates the Earth, all that sort of stuff, it just doesn't work. Uh, and it works, it doesn't work because Supergirl fans don't want to read stories of her like that. And... <clears throat> people who want to read about angsty, angry uh, girls who hate everybody don't want to read Supergirl. So it just never works. But every so often, DC decides to try to go back to that well, and it's just painful to watch. Interesting. Yeah, it's sort of that makes a lot of sense when you sort of put it that way, because I've seen a lot of iterations of the Supergirl book fail. And yeah. you've seen certain ones thrive. You know, Sterling Gates and... Uh, and Jamal Igo is the run that always comes to mind for me that was the most, and I didn't even read a lot of it, but just was celebrated so much by the readers and the fans. They yeah. loved it. Yeah. When you look at that, that run, right, there's a, there's a section by Joe Kelly where Supergirl apparently was sent to earth to kill Kal-El, that right. Jor-El was like convinced that people were possessed by phantoms and like shot up her high school on Krypton. And it's just totally bizarre and awful. And then Sterling Gates comes on and is like, no, this isn't who Supergirl is. I'm going to rehabilitate her. And then the title gets canceled, right? You know, like two years later. And, right. And then they do New 52 and she's horrible and angsty and hates Superman and wants to be left alone and, and even becomes a Red Lantern at one point. And everybody's like, no, this isn't who Supergirl is. And actually that Red Lantern story worked well to sort of like, um, yeah, you know, she realized she had hit rock bottom and all this anger comes out of it on the other side and says, I'm going to, you know, accept Earth as my home and be a hero. And then, of course, the book gets canceled. So uh, it's really it can be frustrating. I know we have a Supergirl title. Well, um, I shouldn't say I know there was a Supergirl title that was based in the TV universe. Uh, I read several issues of that that was entertaining. Is that still going right now? No, that was um, a digital first. Um, It ended up being sort of six print issues, so whatever that was, 13 Uh, chapters, uh, written by Sterling Gates, kind of um, as to bridge the gap between the end of the first season and the beginning of the second. And that was excellent. Um, I enjoyed uh, those. Yeah, uh, you know, plopped right into the that universe, uh, you know, really has all of that optimism, brings Psy in, you know, uh, uh, who we talked about earlier. Uh, that was really well done. And beautiful art. Bengal, Emmanuel yeah. Lupacchino, uh, John Boy Myers, Cat Stag covers. Really, that whole run was gorgeous. So does she have a book on the stands right now? No, she does. Um, uh, when Rebirth happened, uh, they decided to give her her own book. So, yeah, written by Steve Orlando, um, art by Brian Ching, and it's trying to sort of make uh, take elements of the show um, and merge it into this character that was the new 52 Supergirl. So um, she works for the DEO. She's an intern at CatCo. Um, uh, the Danvers are her adopted parents, but she's younger than the Melissa Benoist character. She's in high school. 
Um, and she's just trying to, again, um, after the new 52, she basically is like, I want to become an optimistic hero. I want to become a role model for people and inspire. So um, I think it's still a little bit trying to find its way because it's, is it, is it the show Supergirl? Is it the new 52 Supergirl? It's kind of an amalgam. And I think they're trying to sort of get the right mix. Um, but I've really enjoyed it so far. Excellent. Glad to hear it. All right. I had one final thing I want to say about this book was the back cover. Uh, I love the uh, the body positioning that Perez and Giordano gives Supergirl as she's like laying on the panel borders, to like looking back at all of her previous iterations. I just think that's a nice little piece of body language. I like these kind of informal little back covers that they had for these digests. Yeah, and I like how you see um, the pigtailed young Supergirl, and then the one that has the the campus cuddle bun haircut, as they called it, and then the older Supergirl with longer hair. It kind of is a nice sort of, um, you sort of see her aging as it goes through. Very cool. Yeah, I I agree that that top panel of Supergirl is just wonderful. Absolutely. All right. Uh, Well, uh, Angie, any comments on the saga of Supergirl, the the back page um, where they just kind of recap her history? You know, they, they mentioned that her parents, uh, Zorel uh, and Allura, were alive uh, in a different dimension. It was called the Survival Zone, so they are living on Kandor, ultimately becomes Rockin. Um, and then the last sentence, you know, just to, goes to show that she wasn't done uh, changing careers. Um, as this book came out, she was in Superman Family acting as an actress in a TV soap opera. So um, <laughs> that happened in uh, Superman Family 208. And then when Superman Family ends and Daring New comes out, Paul Kupperberg, Paul Kupperberg again hits the reset button, sends her back to school. So she goes to Lakeshore University in Chicago to study criminology. So. Oh my goodness. Always evolving. Why were the <laughs> why were the L's so determined to be on television while they had secret identities? It didn't seem like a good idea. <laughs> uh, maybe a House of L stood for limelight or something like that. Yeah, they, uh... weird. You, you would think you'd want to have a low profile if you have a secret identity as opposed to being on television, but what do I know? Oh, it was the 70s. Uh, and, you know, the uh, Sorry, uh, you know, that, that was a demanding job, right? A soap opera actress. That's like filming every day. So, like, yeah. you can't just, like, fly off and say, I'm going to fight Terra Man, you know? Well, you're you shouldn't, you shouldn't just... say that anyway, but I get I get your point. We're going to swoop down and save a cat out of a tree, and some lady's going to go, oh, you're in my stories. <laughs> you know? so. All right. Well, that that is... Best of DC Blue Urban Digest number 17. Rob, you're our digest guy. You know, in the scheme of digest, you know, good, bad, amazing. What do you think? Oh, I think it's a terrific collection. I, I, uh, you know, I like when they did these sort of, um, I don't want to say off-brand, but, you know, I liked it when DC ventured out past Superman and Batman. You know, and so I think I thought it was terrific. I think Supergirl absolutely deserves it. As As Ange mentioned, she had an extraordinary extraordinarily long run i mean basically went 20 years appearing somewhere every single month in some capacity and she had her own migo doll i mean she was a big you know she was a big character for for dc comics so uh i think it's a i think it's a solid collection i maybe you know my personal uh, you know like i maybe would have maybe reprinted another one of the the, the later stories but uh, no i think i think it's a really good book sandwiched between two very nice covers you know i gotta wonder now i'm looking at this okay so this came out in the middle of 1981 the movie came out in the middle of 1984 could they have been in pre-production at this point or negotiation that they might do a movie and that might have been what motivated the digest mm, 
and I don't think it was that far ahead. But I mean, they were probably thinking about it. I mean, it, after Superman One, Superman Two were were killing it at the box office. They must have at least thought, you know, is there other things we could do here? I doubt they were in pre production, but but I'm sure the Saul. Con- I mean, once you buy the rights to the character, you means you're thinking about it in some capacity. Okay. All right. Well, Ange, any closing thoughts on this digest besides the fact that you keep it under your pillow every night now that Martin Gray sent it to you? <laughs> well, I would say that if they did a digest about UFOs and strange sports stories, then certainly Supergirl is worthy of her own. <laughs> that is a very fair statement, sir. That is a very fair statement. And uh, I think with that, why don't we, in fact, we're going to talk about UFOs in the bag. Why don't we take a quick podcast promo break? And when we come back, we're going to do your listener feedback from the last two episodes and Ange is actually going to hang out with us and help us with the feedback guys we finally developed our time machine should we use it to go back and see how Stonehenge was built or become friends with Hitler and convince him to stay in art school or we could go back in time and get the comic books we missed yeah Yeah. the comic book time machine a journey back in time to explore comic books good and bad whether from seven decades ago or seven days ago. Join our journey at comicbooktimemachine.com. Hey, I'm Jen. And I'm Sean. We're here to tell you about our podcast, Worst Collection Ever. And this is the show where we tell you about the worst comic book collection in existence. And it just happens to belong to us. We have some of the worst comics from the 70s, 80s, and 90s. They're bad. They don't, Terrible. They're not worth anything. No good. Why do we Very own them? Bad. I own number of issues of Terror Inc. and Guy Gardner. Basically, we go around to local comic book stores and we buy everything we can out of dollar boxes. We tell you about the weird stuff in them. We tell you about stuff that's related to them. We go into tangents. And we're very uninformed, so... Oh my god, totally. But totally check out our podcast because you'll hear us just talk and joke about Marvel books and DC books from God Only Knows When. That's right. It's our show, Worst Collection Ever, every Tuesday on iTunes, Stitcher, anywhere you get your podcasts. Download, rate, subscribe, tell a friend. It'll be good and terrible, but good. And we're back with listener feedback, and we have feedback for episode three of Digest Cast, which is Strange Sports Stories, as well as episode 3.5, which was the Marvel Digest number one Spider-Man. We're going to start with iTunes reviews. We have an iTunes review from our pal Chuck Coletta, and he says, Great comics come in small packages. Digest Cast celebrates one of the best formats that reprinted comics during the 70s and 80s. Host Rob Kelly and an eclectic roster of guests. I love that he left Shag out. An eclectic yeah. roster of guests are both entertaining and informative. Well worth your time. Thank you very much for the iTunes review, Chuck. I really appreciate it. As far as I'm concerned, you can just do the rest of the show because clearly I don't even rate. So I love uh, it. thanks, awesome. Mr. Coletta. Thanks, Chuck. I appreciate it, man. And uh, <laughs> so we got uh, comments over on our website, which of course is fireandwaterpodcast.com. Uh, we have a comment from David Ace Gutierrez. He says, using cards to play a game was used in the wonderful B-movie Zone Troopers, directed by Danny Bilson and written by Bilson and Paul DeMeo. Solid show. Maybe I'd prefer standard sports stories. (laughs) Now, I just want to say, as Rob mentioned, these comments are coming from the website, and that's critical because, you know, a lot of our shows will go and pull feedback from, you know, social media and all this stuff. No, we just, for this show, we try to keep it a little bit in digest form. So we just focus on the comments on the website and, and iTunes. So please, that is the place to join the conversation. It looks like your next comment is from some guy named Dr. Ange, so I guess I'll cover that one. 
<laughs> Did you fix all the spelling mistakes, Shay? Oh, yeah, absolutely, yeah. Okay. I rewrote it for him. Uh, such a bizarre trade all around when talking about the strange sports stories one. Um, love the basketball game, or the baseball game, excuse me. I wonder what would stop Plastic Man and the Flash from stealing bases all the time. I love that Luther thinks that an android can't be duplicitous because Amazo <laughs> was the, the umpire. I thought that was hysterical. But um, And then the, I actually like the tennis story, which is the one where they were playing tennis with a hand grenade, right? Um, yeah. <laughs> because you are dropped into a completely bizarre situation, and that I thought was just insane. Like You could just imagine if like you're watching The Twilight Zone and it opens up with two guys playing tennis with a grenade. That would just be fantastic. Um, <laughs> But I just keep thinking in that baseball game, like, why didn't Plastic Man, like, keep his foot on first base and then just touch all of the other ones and then bring it around? It's like a home run every time. But maybe I'm talking too much sports. <laughs> Most of the people at home are going, what's this, the sports? I don't understand. <laughs> and we heard from our buddy uh, Mark Baker-Reich. Uh, Mark was nice enough to write in and basically kind of explained that he's not a huge fan of the sports stories, but he appreciated the podcast. So thanks for that, Mark. Then we heard from, uh, I don't uh, Edo Bosnar, I guess is how you say that. I am sorry, Mr. Bosnar, unless that's a clever like anagram for something. Um, he, he said a lot of new things. He goes, I'm a huge fan of the Digest and had a whole stack of them back in the day. And that included this one, which I quite enjoyed, even though it wasn't uh, I wasn't much of a sports fan. He says, one of my two favorites was the faceless basketball team story. That's right up Rob's alley right there, folks. And he says, I'm sure if I read it now as an adult, I'd find it completely silly. But back then, at about the age of 12 or 13, when I first bought this digest, I thought it was so cool. I thought it had sort of the outer limits or Twilight Zone feel to it. Uh-huh, Ange, there you go. He says, uh, my other favorite was the space ball story that you guys seem to like as well. That was my favorite. Very good. And uh, it was just a nicely put together feature. And I always thought Infantino did his best work in the sci-fi stories from the late 50s to early 60s. You're not going to get an argument from me on that one, Ido. I'm telling you. <laughs> yeah, I'd agree with that. Uh, he said, he also goes on, he says, I know you've mostly excluded the possibility of covering the virtually countless Archie digests, of which I also had a big stack in the day. But does that also include the two Archie superhero digests? I had the second back when it came out, read it to tatters, and have both now. I'd love to see here those get covered. Also, we will be exploring the Marvel pocket books of the late 1970s. I had most of these, and honestly, I liked them better than the DC Digest. Um, yeah, I completely forgot about that, that Archie did the superhero digests. I, I'd be open to, to covering those if we could get our uh, hands on we them. We could find them. Yeah, I know, <laughs> right. I mean, I don't think they're terribly expensive, but, you know, we both Shag and I already have a lot of the DC ones, and so it's like, well, we, we have these instead of, like, why go out and buy more? But I, I wouldn't rule those out. And as for the Marvel, Marvel pocketbooks, it's kind of the same thing. Um, we have so many digests to cover, and we only do digest cast once a month that we are not going to run out of material for, forever. And so I can't picture us, like, branching out and, like, doing non-actual digests. But, I, again, I wouldn't totally rule it out. And, in fact, uh, the Marvel pocketbook that they did of, of Captain America versus Baron Blood, that's a mountain comic. I bought that up in the Poconos. So I might even cover that one over on FW Presents at some point because I, I love that book. So so no plans just yet, Edo, but but uh, we might we, we could at some point. Now, I, I am gunning for us to do a Marvel Digest coming up. Um, I, I had been gunning for us to do a Spider-Man Digest for quite a while, one of the ones from the 80s. And then they actually published a new Spider-Man Digest, which kind of threw a spanner in that works, I guess. I don't know. But either way, I, I think we'll still be doing a Marvel Digest at some point. And then uh, after we do the Kickstarter, then we'll probably go ahead and uh, do that Transformers Digest. But we'll <laughs> see how that turns out. That's the only way out. we're going to do it is if we make some money from it. <laughs> 
and then Ito gave a comment over on the Spider-Man Digest one. He says, uh, I've been curious about the contents of this Digest ever since I heard about it. I really want it now. However, that's going to be a problem because I live in Europe. No RC Digest distribution here. Oh, what a hmm. blow. That's that's disappointing. I'm sorry to hear that, Ito. I really am. I'm surprised uh, I hope at you're that. Able to... What's that? I'm surprised at that. I thought Archie was all over the place. You know, I thought there was like translating different languages and stuff. I never would have guessed that they're not available in Europe. Well, he specifically says Archie Digest. So it could be the fact that we have it in every grocery store is uh, a phenomenon in the United States, maybe not in Europe. And we're just speculating here. We don't know. Why don't you fill us in, Edo, in the comments on this episode? Yeah, I'd love to know that. That's interesting. Okay. Uh, Bradley Null left a comment. He says, this is a digest I still own. I bought it from a local drugstore. I love the first story. It's probably where I learned the rules of baseball. Look at that. It's informative. <laughs> There's a reoccurring th- theme of nerds learning about sports from comics throughout this whole uh, – <laughs> through all the feedback here. And I don't mean that in a mean way because I learned a lot of sports here too. I think. What is this thing of people doing physical activity? I don't understand it. <laughs> Um, our pal Chris Franklin from our network, uh, he says, uh, I'm kind of surprised Hanna-Barbera didn't adapt the superhero story into an episode of Challenge of the Super Friends. How perfect would that have been? Of course, as Chuck posted, the B&B crew did give us the animated version of it at least. Oh, I would have killed to see that as an episode of Challenge of the Super Friends. That would have been so awesome to hear that super angry Luthor. You know, he's like, you're out! And he's like screaming and stuff like that. That would have been so cool. I would have loved that. Oh, man. Now flip the script there. You know what would have been fun would have been a Laugh Olympics Digest. That would have been totally awesome. Can you that imagine? would have been really cool too. They did treasuries of those, but they didn't do digests. No way. Yeah, yeah I have them. Yeah, they're really cool. Oh, of course you do. But that sounds awesome. Uh, then Chris, uh, again from the network, uh, and, and by the way, Rob was shortchanged him. He didn't say his shows, but you know, the Supermates podcast, the Power Records show, the Batman Nightcast podcast, whenever that's coming back. And, uh, where did he get those wonderful toys from? Uh, well, podcast. So, Superman movie minute coming soon. Oops. I keep forgetting to mention that. Thank you. Yes, of course. Uh, he, uh, Chris Lister's comment on the Spider-Man digest. He goes, yes, the modern stuff doesn't reproduce as well, but it's still better than the eighties Marvel digest. Those things were illegible. Ugh. He's got a real mad on for those 80s digests he does. Uh, he goes, I get a smile on my face every time I pass one of those at the checkout counter. Talking about the new Spider-Mans. So nice to see Spidey back at regular retail. It does beg the question why there wasn't an Iron Man team up in this one to tie into Homecoming, though. Yeah, that is, that's a Ooh. very good point, you know? Um, and I'm, I'm kind of like him. I mean, I see these. I still see the Spider-Man Digest in stores and stuff, and I just I get the biggest grin when I see them. And when I was in my grocery store this week, I noticed the Spider-Man Digest were all sold out. So I was very excited about that. Yeah, I bet the movie made them quite popular, right? They're, like, yeah. perfect uh, as you check out. Absolutely. Yeah, that's cool stuff. Uh, Siskoid from our network, of course, he does First Strike Invasion, Ohamu or Not, giving that Star Trek, Lonely Hearts Romance comics podcast. He also does the blog of Geekery, Legion of Super Bloggers, plus FW Team Up and Kung Fu Fridays. He's trying to do more shows than me. That's not going to stand. He says, uh, as I am <laughs> fond of saying everything I know about sports, I learned from comics. So imagine what I think I know about sports. <laughs> <laughs> Love it. Awesome. You know, I'm a sports fan and a comic fan, so I'm finding all of these even uh, extra amusing. Uh, and so uh, Keith C. Baker uh, left a, um, a comment where he said, True story, when I was 12, I was cussed out by my assistant coach, who was my dad, for reading this digest during batting practice. For some reason, I was supposed to learn something from watching other dudes take BP. Loved the goofiness of this book. 
once again, you fellas find the joy in even if uh, even if the stories are out of your wheelhouse, and that's a baseball reference. And I can tell you that um, I never quite understood like why I had to watch other guys bat in Little League. Like Either they were better than me, and I was like, what the heck? Or they were worse than me, and I was like, why am I doing this? <laughs> well, Keith, Keith is our resident sports comics guy, because he actually runs a Twitter handle called Sports and Comics. And uh, he's an absolute hoot to hang out with, too, by the way, if you get this opportunity. Don't miss that chance. But uh, he continues on. So the whole wheelhouse thing, I did not know that's a baseball reference. And neither did Siskoid. Siskoid wrote in, it's a, it's a base, wheelhouse is a baseball term? You know, he's confused. And then Keith explained, the wheel is the circular area that the bat travels through when a batter swings at the ball. A batter's wheelhouse is the area where he's more likely to hit the pitch ball. Siskoid. A reference back to his earlier comment says, I just learned something about sports not from a comic. Thanks, Keith. <laughs> now, to be fair, it is a comics-related podcast, so I think you're in the same wheelhouse there, Siskoid. Oh, come on. I didn't even get a groan for that, guys. <laughs> uh, then we heard from Ted Kilvington, which I'm pretty sure is a fake last name. Uh, he he's, does the Justice Trek podcast. Because, that by the way, that last name is just too awesome. It sounds like you know he should have been a, a, a comic that DC canceled in the implosion. But anyway, um, Ted wrote in to say, DC actually did try a series of ordinary sports stories <laughs> in the 1970s in a title called Champion Sports, which had even less success than strange sports stories. At least they didn't publish a, a sports horror hybrid called Weird Sports Stories, where Kane or Abel would show up and narrate the gruesome demise of a jerk shortstop. <laughs> I'm trying to picture like, you know, an ordinary sports story where it's like there was a hockey game. It ended in a tie. <laughs> Next up. Like, okay. Wow. All right. Drawn by John Rosenberger. It's very exciting. Uh, he also left a comment regarding the Spider-Man digest. He said, Archie publishing Spider-Man picks of Peter Parker in pops or it didn't happen. <laughs> I like this Ted Kilvington guy. Do, you yeah. should come around more often. I, I'm pretty sure wasn't wasn't he a Marvel villain, Kilvington? I don't know. Maybe I'm no, it was no. I already established it was an implosion comic okay. there. I can't right, seventies. Fair enough. Uh, <laughs> Zoom Yukinori from our network. Of course, he does the FW podcast, and he has a bunch of upcoming shows on his own. He says, uh, in addition to the two, you have to imagine it in in Zoom's super bass voice. In addition to the two stories illustrated here. From Strange Sports Stories, Volume 1, Issues 4 and 5, John Rosenberger also illustrated both Strange Sports Stories, Volume 1, Issue 6. And you do know Mr. Rosenberger was Shag. He was the co-creator of Lady Cop. Woo! Oh, my gosh. I forgot That's all about awesome. that. I should have pointed that out. I completely forgot about that. Yes, he is the co-creator. You got that on a T-shirt. <laughs> yeah, I did. It's amazing. Uh, Max Romero, also from our network, upcoming the upcoming Plasticast show, and he does the It's Plastic Man blog. He says, great episode, guys, and while I realize sports are not for everyone, I argue that the stories in this digest are just barely about sports. If you're a fan of weird sci-fi or horror, there's plenty to enjoy here. Plus, you both made me laugh out loud more than once. Maybe that's why everyone on the train was giving me plenty of space. But, point of order, Plastic Man did not cheat. He tricked Sportsmaster with his foot as base gimmick, which, if you use the real-life hidden ball trick as precedent, is totally legal. Even Amazo thought so. (laughs) I love that Max took the time to think that out. <laughs> you know, the hidden ball trick is really tough to pull off because the pitcher can't be on the mound. So I'm going to have to go back and look at that page again to see whether or not it, it actually fits. <laughs> and four people understood that reference. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> then we heard from Martin Gray, the enabler, uh, from the uh, the guy who gave uh, uh, Ange his Supergirl, blog, uh, Supergirl digest. And, and then he also... Scooped me in an eBay auction for a bunch of digests. Thanks for that, Martin. 
Anyway, he's from the Too Dangerous for Girl blog and the proud owner of several DG, DC Digests that were supposed to be mine. Uh, he wrote in to say, my favorite of the picks you show was the guy Vaulting Over the Earth by Dick Giordano, who was sort of an MVP, hey, a sports term, uh, in this one, uh, what with the inking other people as well and doing a full art job here. Yeah, I just wanted to point that out because Martin, I totally agree. That That's why I put that panel out there when I did that because that vaulting image where you can sort of see the space through him and stuff, I just love that image. It just, wow, really struck me. Because uh, the whole idea of pole vaulting over the earth makes no sense, but artistically it was beautiful. And then he wrote, themed anthologies such as this and the wonderful UFO collection can contain any number of gems, even the, if the more iffy stories usually elicit something of interest, such as an intriguingly obscure comic creator or the then-contemporary social attitude that surprises us today. Totally agree. All these are a snapshot in time uh, and a snapshot of creators and, and, and at the peaks of their powers, and it's just a joy. And that UFO one, it's on our list. It's on our list. I'm looking forward to doing that. We might have a guest on that one. Yeah, I think he might want to do it. Um, Martin continues, as well as co-creating Lady Cobb, John Rosenberger was the lowest lane artist for a while. I really liked his smooth lines. Um, I'm going to take this opportunity to, again, quote Lady Cobb, VD is like an underground river poisoning you. I love that line from Lady <laughs> Also, Martin says, are the Faceless Five anything to do with the faceless creature from Saturn who used to pop up in Strange Adventures with some regularity? You may remember him as being one of the forgotten villains, and he's probably in the Super Sons comic this month, so you might want to look there. Finally, Marvin says, uh, Martin says, uh, the dwarf story is my favorite, a proper strange story if there ever was one, and I have to agree that was pretty wild. Huh. No, wait, so the, the faceless creature is in Super Sons coming up? Yeah, um, it looks like they're going to have the Forgotten Villains be sort of like uh, from some out-of-continuity Earth and now invading the Rebirth Earth, so it looks pretty uh, cool. I gotta tell you guys, that Super Sons book is like, of all the Rebirth books, it's one of my favorites. I enjoy the heck out of that thing. Yeah, it is a ton of fun. It, it is not even like Zany Haney crazy, like the old sports, uh, the old uh, ones he used to write. He, he wrote the Super Sons, right? Yeah, of course, yeah. Yeah. He, he, it's not zany at all, but they're just really, really enjoyable. Uh, then we heard from my buddy Centaurin. Uh, he kind of filled us in for a nerdy history on basketball. He mentioned a podcast called 99% Invisible. The episode came out about the same time we did ours, so check that out. Then we heard from Sphinx Magoo. He says, if uh, anyone still wants to hear more coverage of the strange sports stories, Tom Caters covers some classics on his podcast. Uh, he gives a, a URL there for the particular episode. He goes, this story features gorillas playing baseball. Enough said. It's the May 2nd, 2017 episode covering Brave and the Bold, number 49. Now, Rob, you might remember Tom Caters. He did a little something called Tom versus Aquaman podcast. He did. He did. Yes. Yep. Very enjoyable stuff. Uh, we got a comment from Groovy Mike Decker. I love that you can call yourself that. That's cool. He says, back when I bought my Amazing Spider-Man comics at the Thriftway grocery store and my Batman comics at 7-Eleven. Waiting four months for the conclusions of the story was a really big deal. The suspense was killing me. And don't get me started on the whole The Night Batman Died four-parter by David B. Reed over in Batman. I never could find all four issues no matter how many 7-Elevens my mom took me to. Sheesh. <laughs> so it sounds like he's really happy about the newspaper distribution yeah, uh, or newsstand distribution of yeah, Spider-Man. Again, <laughs> I'm not sure why we're so nostalgic for that. Really. <laughs> my my Star Wars uh, Marvel Star Wars collection speaks volumes about the volumes I'm missing. So yes, <laughs> newsstand distribution was tough in the day. I uh, heard from my buddy Doug Zuisha from the Doom Patrol blog, My Greatest Adventure 80. He also does the image post for the Waiting for Doom podcast. On the Spider-Man one, he just said, looking forward to this listen and finding the darn thing in the wild. Obviously, he's having trouble in the hills of Michigan finding that one. It's out there, Doug. I promise. I promise. 
And we get a comment from Billy Lacasse regarding the Spider-Man Digest. He says, great episode. Enjoyed it so much I took your advice and went and found and bought one here in Winnipeg, Manitoba at my local Safeway. Can't wait to read it with my kids. Just wanted to add that I've been a fan of the network shortly before the Secret Origins joined the network. Love all the podcasts. Well, thank you, Billy, and congratulations finding the book in the far-flung corners of Winnipeg, Manitoba. That's awesome. <laughs> and and sorry for the downhill trend we've had ever since we added Secret Origins. So it's just, it's just the nature of these sort of things. Um, <laughs> Ryan's on vacation with the baby. He's not listening to this anyway. I so. uh, heard from our buddy Brian Linton on the Spider-Man one. He says, thanks for the heads up about the new Marvel Digest is out. I'll keep my eyes peeled next time I visit the grocery store. Hope you found it, Brian. And Dishwater dishwasher Danny, who I love his handle, he says, thank you so much. You two are the reason I have this digest in my hand. That's awesome. I We made a difference in somebody's life, Rob. Look at that. <laughs> yes, we life did. goal unlocked. <laughs> we made people drive all around their local areas burning up fossil fuels just so they could find this stupid comic book. <laughs> <sighs> Put a feather in my cap. <laughs> Well, that is it. That's the feedback from those episodes. Again, if you want to join the conversation, please go out to our website, firewaterpodcast.com. Go up to shows, look for Digest Cast, and look for this episode, and let us know your thoughts on the Supergirl Digest. Let us know your feedback on, on any of the commentary we talked about. Let us know how ridiculous Ange and his love of Supergirl is. Um, no, I'm just kidding. He's a, he's a pretty okay guy. I mean, he saves <laughs> lives for a living. I can't be too mean to him. Uh, you know, Ange, why don't you, uh, before we get going here, why don't you tell the people at home where they can find you on the interwebs again? Uh, I'm uh, most active on Twitter at Dr. Ange 70 I run a Supergirl blog called Comic Box Commentary, and I also man the Fridays on the Legion of Superbloggers, where I am currently uh, finishing up the end of the Paul Levitt's Keith Given uh, run right before it went Baxter. And you've been part of the Who's Who in the Legion podcast that's taken uh, nine months to cover seven issues, so uh, we appreciate you contributing to that as well. It's been a lot of fun. Yeah, mostly because I get to say once again that Lightning Lass is the hottest Legionnaire. It's just so funny how confused you are. You're missing. I understand the spelling. The Phantom Girl looks like it might be spelled as Lightning Lass, but you're just it's a little confusion there. But anyway, and we sincerely appreciate you taking the time out of your busy schedule to be here away from family, away from saving patients, to be here with us, talk this nonsense about, you know, 40-year-old comic books. But thank you so much. We really appreciate it. It's been an absolute blast, sir. Yeah, I seriously can't thank you enough because how often do I get to talk about all of these different eras of Supergirl? And obviously all of this stuff is stuffed in my brain, so it was good to let it out. <laughs> all right, Rob, I picked this one. What are we doing next time? All right, well, my pick is Best of DC Digest number 31, Justice League of America. And that reprints, it's their membership drive issue, it reprints... The issues of JLA featuring uh, the times when Black Canary, Elongated Man, Red Tornado, and Zatanna joined the team. It's one of my favorite of the DC Digest. So that's what we're covering. Best of DC Digest number 31, Justice League of America, features an amazing Gil Kane cover. Everybody, if you don't have it, go pick it up. It's a great comic. I was going to say, and that's the, as I said last time, that's that's the sound of everyone racing to eBay to beat each other to get this one before, <laughs> before we record the episode. All right. Well, thanks again, everybody. Uh, you know, if you want to catch us on the internet, Rob, what's our Twitter handle? Uh, our Twitter handle, we we have one for the show now, which is at Digest Comics, and then of course we have one for the network, which is at FW Podcast. Is it Digest Comics or Digest Cast? Oh, it's Digest Cast. I'm sorry, Digest Cast. Yes, I have so many yeah. Twitter handles, I can't keep them straight anymore. 
Uh, you, pro- you probably have all of them, so that's fine. <laughs> I've, I, I've, I've created two new Twitter accounts. This, this is the last time you and I recorded. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> that's fantastic. Uh, I don't really mean that at all. Anyway, folks, thank you so much for listening. Tune in next time when we cover Justice League of America. Until then, remember, big things come in small packages. Do you know him? Superman? Sure. My sister's got something going with the big guy. Hey, listen, you can borrow any of my clothes anytime you want. Just dig in and help yourself. Thank you. You're very kind. He's a real character. A real hunk. I'll introduce you to him someday if we wind up getting along.